Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about the sticky side of victimhood. (laughs) And by that, um, we're going to be looking at, first of all, the increase in society of people blaming other people, being victims, claiming to be victims, um, using that as an excuse for not making more of their lives. And today's guest is someone who actually was a victim um, as a little child. She, she had nothing, nothing of it was her fault. Um, and she has written a book to help other people get unstuck. And her book is called Stuck A Way Out. So in other words, she would have had all the excuses in the world that she would have needed or that anyone would have needed to say, well, this happened to me when I was a child. And so therefore, you know, I couldn't really, what do you expect? Uh, How much could I have done? This just just ruined my life and, and I couldn't be expected to do much with it. Well, in fact, she has done a lot with her life. And we'll be hearing her story, and then we'll be hearing also some of the things that she writes about in terms of uh, her advice to helping other people get unstuck. Whatever, you know, you don't have to have been a victim of some major trauma um, to feel stuck. (laughs) Lots of us feel stuck in our lives. Um, And so her book is helping people to learn from her experiences to get unstuck. So without further ado, (laughs) let me introduce um, Kim Casey Cobb. And again, as I said, her book is called Stuck A Way Out. So welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you, Dr. Carol. Well, now your story, I mean, I imagine that um, people maybe uh, have heard of your story. Kim was one of the first children to be featured on a milk carton. Do you remember when kids were featured on milk cartons, missing kids, um, and then somebody in their wisdom decided that that was too traumatic for kids sitting at the breakfast table to see other kids who were missing, which I guess is true, but on the other hand, it would be nice to be able to uh, find these missing kids. And sometimes kids who are sitting at the breakfast table Um, may recognize them or may have recognized them from their class. Uh, That wasn't the case with you. (laughs) No one recognized you and saved you. Um, No, they didn't. (laughs) Let's start with the beginning. You know, as a psychiatrist, I always start with my guests uh, at the beginning. Um, You know, so in this case, before you became a victim, what was your life when you were born? Where, Where were you born? Where did you live? Um, who else was in your family, and so on. Sure. Well, my family is all from Texas. Uh, I was born in Oklahoma. We moved back to Texas shortly thereafter. Uh, Lived in Texas until I was about seven years old. My mother, my father, my younger brother, and I. And uh, we moved when I was seven to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, My father had some problems in his business, and 
and some tax problems and things like that, and he really just wanted a new start. So we moved to Wyoming, and uh, within a couple of years, um, my mother uh, decided to uh, divorce my father, and during their divorce, their divorce was very bitter, and during a routine visitation weekend uh, when I was nine and my brother was six, my father woke us up in the middle of the night, late Sunday night, early Monday morning, and asked us, who did we want to live with? Did we want to live with him, or did we want to live with our mother? And uh, he packed us in the car. I told him I wanted to live with him, <laughs> and he packed us in the car with our clothes on our back, maybe one or two changes, whatever we had for the weekend, and he drove off. He drove away across the mountain passes and uh, drove us to an airport in Salt Lake City, Utah, to get on an airplane and um, fly to his father's house, who was going to um, shelter us and and help us hide. We basically became um, abducted, child-snatched children at that point. My mother found out that we were gone uh, when she went to visit our classroom on the next Monday morning at school, and we weren't there. Um, She immediately filed missing persons reports, and over the course of the next few weeks, months, um, and years, we uh, just disappeared. He changed our identities. We used assumed names. We were in and out of school. Sometimes we were in school. Sometimes we weren't in school. And despite uh, her best efforts, using all of the resources that were available to a mother with this In these circumstances in 1979, she was unable to find us. Um, We were one of the first children on milk cartons because that started happening in the very, very early 80s, and they really started in the 1979-1980 era um, bringing those cases forward. Um, We were actually abducted the the day after Eton Patz, who was the first child on a milk carton, and he's who National Missing Children's Day was named for, so that's why we were it was timing why we were one of the first kids on a milk carton because we were abducted the same weekend that, that he was. Um, huh. So well, we, let be, me, we let became... Me you, wait, let me just stop okay. you here. Um, why, um, first of all, did your father have some kind of mental illness or some kind of pro- psychological, well, <laughs> so some kind of psychological <laughs> problems? I mean, why... What was going on before he um, gave you both that question, who, who you would like to live with? What was happening before that? Why were your parents getting divorced? My parents were getting divorced because, uh, yes, to your question, there was mental illness involved, though I didn't learn that until I was a young adult. Um, I, I didn't understand that as a child. I do have a very clear understanding of that now. But my, my father really wanted to kind of live outside of society. Uh, he was very anti-government. Um, he never filed a tax return after, federal tax return after we moved to Wyoming. And it got very, it got progressively more um, radical. And my mother didn't want to live that way. Uh, that was what was going on. And um, really, uh, when we're talking about victimhood, he definitely had um, and, and, and has a victim mentality. And when he took us, he used my mother's um, actions and things she was trying to do in the divorce as his excuse. Over time, I learned that that was just an excuse to live the life that he really wanted to live anyway. Um, 
but he had to spin it and tell us things in a manner to keep us supportive and wanting to stay with him, if that makes any sense. You're psychiatrist. I'm sure you understand exactly what I'm saying. And um, so we, we lived on the run. We lived as homeless fugitives in and out of homelessness. Sometimes we lived in a house. Sometimes we lived out of the back of a van. Sometimes we lived in tents. Um, we pretty much self-educated ourselves, my brother and I did, by reading and, and textbooks and, and library books and things like that because we did miss so much school. We were official FBI missing persons. Um, when I was about 15, I realized that he was not going to let me leave the situation. And I've always had big hopes and dreams and been a very, very ambitious person. And he wasn't going to let it, let us leave the situation. And that's when I had to sort of take things into my own hands and start preparing my escape, so to speak. Okay. So, wait. So, um, um, when he, that night, when he asked you and your brother who you would want to live with, what if you, did, did your brother, first of all, did he say who he wanted to live with? He did, but he was, he was, uh, he was much younger than I was, and he doesn't really have have good recollection of the night. Um, he at the time he wanted to go with me, so we both said the okay. same thing. Of course, of course, we didn't realize what was going to happen. Right. So, why did you say your father at that time? Well, I, as a, as a little girl, I was close to him, and. Um, it's very difficult to explain, but in his own way, he was a loving father. Um, he was um, mentally ill and had issues going on because of the way that he was raised. Um, but he, he, he was a loving father in the best way that he knew how. This was never a physically abusive um, situation or anything like that. Um, but at the time, I told him that I wanted to live with him, and at the time, I meant it. Well, um, did you feel sorry for him? Like you were saying, he had he had kind of a victim mentality, you know, saying that your mother wasn't treating him fairly and so on. Did you feel sorry for him and, and want to be with him because of that in part? Um, you know, I think that I did feel sorry for him. I was very defensive of him and wanted to protect him. Um, I definitely loved him as all little girls loved their father and wanted to be with him. Mm-hmm. He was... He was very good to me as a little girl, and I had no reason not to want to live with him um, if my parents were were divorcing. It was a hard decision, but I had no reason um, to choose one over the other, really. Um, But Mm -hmm. there was just so much infighting going on, and it was clear from the beginning with him that we were going to have to make a choice between, between the two of them. So, yes, I guess nine years old, you were kind of at the older end of the Oedipal phase, which is usually from around three to eight, but uh, can be nine too. Um, And so, you know, at at the period of time that Freud uh, wrote about and discovered when little girls um, want to symbolically marry their daddies and um, kill their mommies, just like little boys want to marry their mommies and kill their daddies, because it's really about, you know, rivalry for the love of the parent of the opposite sex. So it all, that all makes sense. So when, you, when he took you to the airport, as you were traveling to the airport, like, when did you first realize that um, saying that you wanted to live with him 
that he was going to be taking you somewhere far from your mother. On the, on the, on the trip, I realized that on the trip, he, he told me that we might not see her for uh, quite some time was the way that he put it. Um, and he did tell us that because he was taking us across state lines and had not told her that he was, he was breaking the law. Um, he, he presented to us and we thought that all of that would be worked out. Um, really what he had, uh, I don't want to leave this part out, but one of the things that he lied to us about was that she was trying to obtain sole custody from us and take us from him. And that, that was, the, was one of the initial things that got my buy-in um, because I didn't want that to happen. So from the beginning, there was, this, there was this perceived clear choice that had to be made. Either, you know, you can stay with your mother and you won't be able to see me because she's going to have the judge issue custody papers that say you can't see me ever again or you can go with me and not see your mother for a while until we get all of this worked out. So it was a tug of war, a violent, a violent tug of war from the beginning. Um, but what, what he, you know, I, I, I learned as I got older and um, became an adult and eventually met my mother that uh, that wasn't true. She wasn't trying to obtain sole custody of us. There was no reason to have him declared an, an unfit father at the time. There wasn't. Um, and that was, that was really what he was telling us in order to get his, to, to obtain his support, our, our support for him. Uh-huh, uh-huh. uh-huh. And so um, you, you were saying that at first you went to live with his father um, in Utah, right? We flew from Utah to, to Oklahoma, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, yes, oh, and Oklahoma. we stayed there. And, and, and he, he had a house on a lake that was secluded and no one knew about, and we stayed there for the whole summer, um, hidden from, from my mother. Ah, your mother didn't know about um, his father's, this, this house of his father? No, no, she didn't. And uh, so it was, um, it was easy for us to, um, to stay there. She had a suspicion that we had gone to his father, but um, she couldn't physically find the physical proximity of uh, where we were. Uh-huh. And so um, why weren't you able to stay with his father? Like you said, you were moving around a lot and sometimes... We were, we were moving around, and if we stayed with his father, she would have found him. So, I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the police came to his house and searched his house, had a warrant and searched his house, as they did all of our family members, all of their relatives. That was the first place that, you know, my mother had the um, authorities check for us. Uh, but because mm-hmm. we were tucked away in a, in a home that she, didn't, that she had no knowledge of, we were, mm-hmm. you know... Hidden from her. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, um, so what did your father do during this? So, so this is from 9 to 16 that we're talking about that you were on the run, right? Yes. Yes, it is. So what did he do okay. for, for, for money? Um, yes. He did odd, odd jobs for cash. He was also a musician. He played a guitar, and so he, he played in bands and, and did, you know, um, weekend gigs and things like that. So he found odd ways to make uh, to make cash money, mostly janitorial or maintenance work. Um, and during that period of time, the electronic records didn't exist the way that they do now, and it was easy to falsify a an identity. Um, you know, we by 
obtaining a birth certificate of someone that had just has deceased and making up a social security number. These are the kind of things that were possible in that day and age uh, that he did to conceal his identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was very well, okay. <laughs> we yes, <laughs> very creative, very inventive. <laughs> Um, all right, we need to take a break now, but when we come back, um, we will hear more about my guest's life on the run, Kim Casey Cobb. Again, her book is called Stuck A Way Out, and this is, um, you know, I, I guess I should also, of course, and when we come back, I will be asking about how you were feeling during all these years. You know, I'm sure you've had, as this was um, unfolding, I'm sure you had lots of different emotions um, sometimes happy to have gone with him and sometimes sort of questioning it. So we will, we will hear about all of that when we come back. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today with Kim Casey Cobb. Fascinating, fascinating story. She is uh, one of the first kids who was featured on a milk carton because of being missing, having been abducted by her father. Um, and this was in 1979 and she, when she was nine years old and on the run with her father from age 9 to 16. And um, so take us, t- take us, continue the story. And um, 
you know, I, I'd like to know, uh, particularly, I'm sure everybody would like to know about your feeling, like the up, the adventures that you had and the feelings that you had um, during these times. Like, did it ever, for example, you know, I'm sure there were times, it must have seemed like a, a great adventure on the one hand, but on the other hand, were there times when you used to think, man, I made a mistake, <laughs> this is not good, like being homeless, for example? Sure, there were um uh, there were a lot of adventures. We got to see most of the, the lower 48 states on, during that time um, on the road. And uh, so it's also incredible places that, you know, people, adult people that I know to this day still haven't seen. Um, we met a, a lot of people. I think the, the downside of it was probably the isolation. And um, we, we had to be a close, controlled family unit because there was a secret that my dad needed to protect. So we didn't have a lot of friends, um, not the typical social life that um, most children and teenagers have. Um, And my father also met a woman who um, he married who knew about what was going on and was willing to join this situation. So you can imagine what, what kind of a mental state she was um and she so she was not a nice person the situation got worse after um she joined our family group and that was really probably the uh, catalyst for me the beginning of the end she was not a motherly um type and a motherly figure rather mean um and so the worst things that happened were that was the control and the um uh, restrictive type of environment that we had to live in. We did. We had no money ever. So while we always had food to eat, it was staples, um, and the food was controlled. So when we ate, what we ate, how much we ate was was controlled. That was difficult as a growing um, child. There wasn't a lot of freedom of expression and freedom of thought, freedom of speech, you know, allowed or encouraged very, very controlled environment. And as I got older, I just naturally started to rebel against that. Part of that, I'm certain, is just becoming a teenager. Um, But I wanted to start um, expressing myself and developing my own views and and growing into the person that I was um, intended to be. And this environment just (laughs) was not conducive to that. So... Like I said, we were official FBI missing persons. We were also featured uh, by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That means that our our pictures were not only on milk cartons, they were on posters in uh, uh, post offices, in Walmart stores. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children put out um, directories every year that went in all the public libraries that had all of the current existing missing children in the United States, I could go into a public library anywhere and pull that out and find my picture. Have seen my own huh. face on a poster in a, in, a, in a United States post office in Kentucky um, one time. Uh, so all of those things contributed to controlling where we went, uh, where my brother and I went, what we did, who we talked to. Um, and we used fictitious names as well. Uh, so... I stayed kind of withdrawn because I was very afraid of making a mistake and slipping up and using my real name or um, just collapsing and needing to talk to someone, you know, telling a friend uh, because I needed to talk to someone about 
what our situation was. So it was yes, very much that, a situation where been, my father that, wanted us to conform. I was going to say that must have been really difficult um, to, uh, I mean, first of all, how old were you when this woman came and, and joined you all? Ten years old, between 10 and 11. Oh, so it was, oh, so it was early, early on. on. It was early on, oh. yes. Okay. So that must have been less fun. Um, <laughs> there goes the Oedipal uh, connection. Um, so, um, so, like, in places where you did, what was the longest time, for example, that you went to a school? The longest time I went to a school was the last school that I was at before I ran away when I was 16, and that was a year and a half. We have been to, we had been to as many as um, four or five different schools in one year. Um, there was, huh. there were years that we were moving around so much that we didn't go to school at all. Uh, two full years in particular that we did not go to school at all. Um, but we tried to stay, books were always available to us. So my brother and I both were voracious readers and, um, you know, nonfiction and fiction both. And uh, so we kept great specific textbooks and we studied and we tried to keep our um, education up as best we could, the basic things, you know, on our own. So um, uh, during this, let's say the last, at the end, the, the year and a half that you were at this school, I mean, it must have been, you, you must have had, like, uh, I would imagine a, a best girlfriend, at least one, right? Yes, I did. There I started to develop, um, you know, good friendships, uh, some of which I'm still friends with today to this very day. And uh, that's where I did start um, sharing some things and confiding in some people. And as I did that, that's when my um, eyes became open and the veil became lifted that just because this was my dad um, and, you know, your fathers are supposed to be this all-knowing um, person in your life, um, it became evident to me that what he was doing was wrong. And I didn't know whether my mother was right or not, but I knew that what he was doing and what he was expecting of us was not was not right, and that there was another way to deal with this. He just didn't want to do to handle it in a legal way. Um, so that started becoming clear to me. And at the the point in time that I was told when I was 15 years old that I wasn't going to be able to go to college and be what be who I wanted to be, be what I wanted to be, because if I went to college, I was going to have to assume my birth identity. And if I assumed my birth identity, which was flagged by the FBI, they would find him. Um, that is the mm. point that I, real, I realized that this was extremely selfish. It was about him. It was in no way about us. And it was oh almost like he, he, he felt, I describe it in my book, that he fell, from, he fell from a pedestal and the veil was lifted for me. And I was going to have to um, take responsibility for... Um, my own life and where I was and where I was going to go in the future. And also, I would imagine you felt some responsibility to your younger brother, too, to get him out of it. Absolutely, I did. And the, uh, a very tragic, heartbreaking part of this is that he did not want to go with me. He was 14 when I left. I told him I was leaving he didn't want to go with me, um, and he didn't want to follow me in the near uh, future either. It was five years later 
before he and I were reunited. He was 19 and I was um, 23, um, when, 22, 23, whenever we saw each other again. He was grown. Um, he was married to a woman that was um, in her 30s. Uh, he was 19, and he, he married. He was married to a woman that was in his 30s, uh, in her 30s. Pardon me. And uh, so, you know, we had to make up for lost time. And he, he as well, eventually, um, you know, got on a path to recovery and and got help and uh, found his calling in life. He's successful now. He's had a successful career. Um, he just took a little bit. He t- he took a, some some detours that. that uh, that some paths that I didn't that I didn't take. So I I immediately wanted to start working on it and um, conquer this. And uh, you know, I think for a period of time, he just kind of thought, well, I, I left, I'm out. You know, I, I'm over it. And some of it got swept under the rug until he was, you know, in his 30s. And and then he decided to to face the real issues in the family and and uh, deal with the things from the past that were uh, continuing to hold him back. Uh-huh. So, um, so when you decided to leave, um, uh, when you told your brother that you were going to leave, weren't you scared? Like, how soon before you left? <laughs> how did you leave? I guess I should be asking you that, too. How did you escape? And weren't you afraid um, <laughs> if you let too much time between the time you told your brother you were leaving and when you left that he was going to tell your father? Oh, very much so. I was extremely scared, but uh, I wasn't honest with him. I told him that I was going to tell our father, and uh, that was that never were, my plan. That you were going to, oh, that, oh, that you were yeah, going to tell I, him. I okay, told yeah. my brother that I was, I told my brother that I was going to tell him that I was leaving, but that was never my plan because I knew that if I did that, I didn't feel like I would really get out. Um, because right. my father was scared. He was scared of, of being caught and being arrested and, and going to prison and, and facing the consequences of what he had done. So I knew that I couldn't tell him. Um, so I had confided in a friend, in two friends, and one of them uh, helped me. And what I did was I, you know, snuck a couple of changes of clothes um, out of the house. And, you know, I had a I had a part-time job at a restaurant and I made an excuse that I had to work a double shift. It gave me enough time for her to get me to an airport and get me on a plane. And what had happened in that period of time was interesting. Um, my dad actually began to get lonely and feel disconnected from family because it had been so long since we had seen anyone or anyone had known our, our whereabouts. So he had contacted his sister um, who lived in the Dallas, Texas area, and he had let her know, trusted her with where we were. She came, uh, she came to visit us, and she saw immediately uh, what was going on, and um, she told me, when and if I ever need her help, let me know. So things oh. had had, I, w- I was rebelling against the situation so badly um, that, uh, it, they took they took me to a counselor. They took me to a therapist because you know I, I, they felt like I was wrong. I was mentally unstable, and uh, it was it was it was because I was resisting the controlling environment. You know, I wanted to wear fashionable clothes. We, you know, just different things. We didn't have money for any of that, obviously. So it was just having an independent thought process that wasn't in line with their belief system got me in a lot of trouble. So. 
um, they took me to a, a counselor and um, she two or three times and she asked to speak to me alone and um, she asked me some questions and I talk about this. This is a great scene in my book where I talk about this lady asking me, you know, do you drink? Are you sexually active? Do you date? Do you sneak out? Do you do drugs? No, none of those things. What do you do? I like to read and I spend all my time with my family. Um, she told me, and I have always to this day felt like she was sending me a message. She said, I don't know what to tell you, except I think that you're an exceptional young lady, and I have three teenagers, and I wish they all walked the straight and narrow like you do. There's more going on here in your family. I don't know what it is, but I also can't say anything else to you. I hope you understand what I'm telling you, but you're okay. And um, so... Wait, wait. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, I'm confused. Who took you to this therapist? The sister of your father? When you, you oh, see, when you I'm left, sorry, no. when you escaped. My you father, my, you, my father took me to the therapist before I left. So um, I'm sorry for being unclear. Yet. My my uh, my aunt had seen what was going on, and and uh, so she had um, let me know that I would have a place to go if I wanted to right. leave. And so I was wanted. It was getting to a a stress point within the family because I was rebelling against the situation so bad and during that time of rebellion they took me to this counselor that your father did understand your, your my father, father did your my father did yeah that was and, uh, actually ris- wait that was risky on your father's part because you could have told your, your the the counselor um the true story yes yes and I and I didn't I I didn't out of out of fear obviously but uh, how I left was, uh, I'm sorry for digressing, but how I left was I, uh, uh, my, my friend helped me, drove me to an airport. My aunt had, uh, I'd called her collect from a payphone um, after school, and she had offered to uh, take me in. And so I got myself to her, um, to Dallas, Texas, and um, she and her husband helped me get up on my feet. Um, I had to drop out of high school study for my GED, which, you know, I did, and I finished that when I was 18, and I was reunited with my mother. After that, I took about a year to try to get my head on straight, went to, um, went to counselor, counseling myself to, to make sure that I was empowering myself with the right mental tools because of what we had been through to, um, to, to start this new life of mine in a healthy way. And uh, then I met my mother, and um, uh, we started the road, the path to recovery. And um, it was a long, long journey for me to understand everything that she had done and everything that um, she had been through. A very long, traumatic, rocky road uh, for her. Um, but there was a lot involved there. I had to, I didn't have a social security number. I had no identity except this assumed identity that... Um, you know, that we had used, and I had a birth certificate. Um, so I had to go put all of that together and, and, and you know, um, uh, piece all of that together and do at the age of 18 what a lot of children in that day did, 8, 9, you know, 10 years old. Uh, but I started college and, um, you know, uh, worked my way through college, and um, it took me 11 years to finish college, but I finished a, a business degree and um, well, who were you, continued wait, to who were you, one second did you did you uh, well first of all you you went to live with your uh, you when you escaped you went to live with your father's sister is that right that's right that's right 
So, I mean, and, and was she in touch? It sounds like she was in touch with your father. Did she tell him that you were with her? We called, we called him as soon as I got there and told him. And uh, he um, went completely insane and um, did not believe that I could stay there and uh, the authorities not find out where he was. And I had no intent of turning him in um, ever. I just wanted to be let go. And uh, mm-hmm. so um, what happened was he immediately picked up, packed up, um, my brother and his wife, and they they moved, they ran again, and to disappear for a number of years. Okay, and now we need to take a break. We will take that up when we come back. My guest is Kim Casey Cobb. This is this would be a this would be a great movie, by the way. Um, <laughs> her book is called Stuck. A Way Out, and we are hearing about her way out, so stay tuned for more. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. We're talking today with my guest, Kim Casey Cobb. Her book is called Stock A Way Out. We have just been talking about how she found her way out, uh, kind of ironically, with the sister of your father who abducted you. Um, so, now, so she was in Texas, in Dallas, I think you said, right? Where did your mother live at the time? My mother had moved back to Texas as well. So, she, my mother was about two hours away from where I was with my aunt. 
And what made you, like, you said you waited a year before you contacted her? How did, is that right? Why was that? I waited about about a year and a half. Uh, uh, I just needed to uh, stabilize my thought process and my emotions. And I had so much uh, going on inside of me that I felt like I needed to... um, to, to work out, and I, I didn't really yeah. know, other than getting away from my dad, I didn't know what I wanted. The other thing was I was not of age yet, and I wasn't sure what the what legally I would be required to do. I didn't want to be, I didn't know my mother at this point. I had memories, and that was it. So I didn't want to be forced to stay oh. with her if that's not, if that's not what I wanted yeah. to do. Um, since oh, I had just left a left a situation where I was being forced to stay somewhere for uh, at the end that I didn't where I didn't want to stay, so um, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I did. I took I took quite a bit of time to just to just think about things, talk to people, talk to professionals, um, and I was starting at this point to understand that my dad was a victim of he, he was an abused child and he was a victim of a harsh alcoholic abusive father that he was raised by and his parents were divorced, I was starting to realize the generational uh, stronghold, mm-hmm. if, if you will, and I was just becoming familiar and sort of aware of the concept, and to be quite honest with you, I was terrified that there was something wrong with me and that um, that, that I there was that I was going to have all these problems and all these issues, and so it was a relief to me to, to have... Um, to to have counseling and therapy and help available to me so that I could be honest and open with someone after so many years of having to be mm-hmm. choked down choked down and controlled and not allowed to express myself. Mm-hmm. So I needed that year and, and a so, half. I needed that year and a half for myself. Yes, that makes sense. So, but did you call your mother during this time? No, no, we we didn't. It was rather dramatic how she uh, found out. Uh, we planned it. We planned it um, um, right around my 18th birthday, and um, both sides of my family lived. In, my mother's uh, side of the family and my father's side of the family lived in this this one town in east east the east part of Texas, and uh, so we went to see my dad's mother, my grandmother, who I had not seen since I was eight or nine. (laughs) And uh, my aunt contacted my mother in the same town and asked to have lunch with her. Um, And over lunch, uh, my aunt told her that I was with her, that I was in town and that I wanted to, that I wanted to see her. And um, so we arranged to meet in a parking lot at a school and uh, it was in February it was cold and um, I didn't know what to expect she didn't know what to expect she was at, at, you know hoping for a, a very emotional loving reunion and I didn't know the truth about her side of the story all I ha- knew was my the side of the story that my father had told me um, uh-huh. but we got we got together we sat um, in a car emotionally talking for an hour or two then I left with her to go to her parents' house and saw the rest of my family, my, my grandparents um, on her side that I hadn't seen since I was seven years old, my aunts, uncles, cousins, 
Um, and my mother was remarried uh, by this time to a very, very nice man, and uh, they were um, extremely uh, grateful to have me in their life. Um, I wound up moving from my aunt's house to uh, my mother's house and living for the summer with her. She helped me get um, uh, started in college, get all the applications started, and just kind of get going in, you know, a, a more normal path for a person my age. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so it, you know, it's interesting also that uh, for all these years, that nobody, and with all the milk cartons and posters and so on, nobody did ever identify you. Is that right? That's, That's right. No one ever did. Um, there was there were times that we dyed our hair and um, and and you know things like that. There's not much you can do other than that to change a person's appearance. But um, but we moved around so much. Uh, we moved around so much that. Uh, um, it, uh, uh, it, it would have been difficult. My mother did come very close to finding us one time, um, and I didn't know this until after I was reunited with her, but we were, when I was 10 or 11, I'm going to say, let's say I was in the fourth grade, um, fourth or fifth grade, we were in a town, and um, we, we, we moved, and my mother had a tip uh, she had sent her own flyers and posters out to, to schools all across the country, schools, television stations, mm-hmm. radio stations. She had her own sort of homegrown initiative in addition to all of the, um, the uh, institutional type things that were going on. Um, she had actually sent a poster to this, um, this school, and uh, she got a tip that uh, we might be there that and it was an anonymous tip, I believe, and she went to this school, and it was months later, um, and we had already left. She talked to the principal at the school, and he told her, yeah, I, I, got the, I got one of your flyers. I know that they were here, and she said, why, oh, wow. didn't you, why didn't you call me? And he said, I just misunderstood. I thought that if you sent it here with a letter that you knew they were here. And she said, no, I sent those out to schools all, of, all over this nation. Oh, and wow. so she, met, she missed us by, you know, just a, a margin of a few months. And so she, she was able to meet our teachers. She saw our schoolwork, got to sit in the desk that we oh, sat wow. in. It was, it, was, it was gut-wrenching for her. And, you know, it, wasn't, it was another seven or eight years after that um, that she was reunited with me. So... It was much longer. Um, I don't like to speak for my brother. I like him to tell his own story. But the facts are that it was much longer for uh, their reunion. He was six the last time she, when we were abducted, and he, she did not see him again until he was 27. He had no memories wow. of our parents' life together. He had a really hard time um, mentally working uh, up to the point where he was going to, in his mind, need her for the first time. So they went 21 mm-hmm. years without, without seeing each other. Wow. This is all so sad. But you obviously have managed. We didn't really, you know, your story is so interesting. We really didn't get into too much of the uh, how to get unstuck, except that you have shown by, by example, by your story, um, that, uh, 
you know, some of the things that went into it, um, you know, I guess, I guess, uh, I mean, like what you were saying, confiding and finding friends, finding out from the friends and I guess their parents and so on. And, but, you know, a lot of it had to do with your own, um, I mean, sort of raising yourself, really. Sure. You know, I, I have this philosophy that victims, victims are definitely a negative product of an imperfect situation. And I realized that I was a product, um, but I made the conscious decision ultimately that I wasn't going to be a negative one. I was going to uh, be mentally healthy and I was going to achieve some things that was going to get stable mentally, physically, financially, and become a person that could use this story to help other people. Um, I'm not keeping it swept under the rug. I never have. I've always shared this story. There's nothing this dramatic that is intended to be tucked away. Um, You know, and I do believe that um, if you're in an environment or in a set of circumstances, my story's super dramatic, but everyone's isn't. You could be stuck in a job or a relationship um, or just in a life rut that that you're, you're not happy with, and it might not be your fault that you're there. It, it wasn't my fault that I was where I was. It might not be a victim's fault that they're where they are and that this happened to them. But so many times it is your fault if you allow yourself to stay there. You can do something about that. Today can be rock bottom and tomorrow can be the first step out of this mess. Uh, but you have to make that conscious decision on your own. While there are people that are going to come in and out of your life to help you, the ultimate responsibility for you falls on you. And I I like to tell people, help yourself. You know, if you don't believe in yourself, how are you going to expect anyone else to? And there's going to be people that are going to come in and out and help you, um, but you, you can't let change in your life be contingent on someone just coming and serving a better life on a platter up to you. Um, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not my advice for people in this book, Stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was reading that um, you became a CFO. You've been working mostly yes. in business. What made you, you know, <laughs> what made you go into that? Um, what made you study that when you went to college? Was it because of all these years of where there was, where money was so tight, where you were homeless, where you wanted to sort of be more able to be in control of, of your money <laughs> and other people's money? No, actually, uh, when I first started college, I uh, was a journalism major because I wanted to be an author. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, so I wound up. Uh, it was by chance that I, you know, I wound up with a uh, a bookkeeping job, and when I was nineteen or twenty, uh, while I was going to college, and um, I'm not a bean counter type of uh, financial officer or accountant. I um, the numbers told a story to me about what was going on inside the business. And it, to me, it was just like reading a book and I found it fascinating. Um, I could walk, they came to, got to a point where I could walk through a business and I could watch the activity that was going on. And I knew exactly where I could expect to see that activity on the financial statements and vice versa. And so it was a, it was a talent somewhat. And, uh, I realized that and I had some mentors in my life that, uh, pointed it out to me and helped me cultivate it. And, um, I've had a very successful career and, uh, it's been a very fun career. Uh, it still is. Um, I'm 49 years old today and I'm having more fun in my career than I ever have been. I have 
things in my life financially that I never would have dreamed that, that uh, I would have. And that's the thing is I, I am so grateful for where I am today and where I have been. And I can still remember, you know, with clarity what it was like to live on the road with, you know, no, no, no nice clothes, you know, not a lot of great food to eat and no money. Um, no heat and air wherever we lived, and uh, sometimes no doors and windows on where we lived. And I can remember when I used to dream about having what I have today. I can still remember mm. what that's like. So I, I, I do not take for granted one single thing, but what I don't want to go through my past again. Um, but I really can honestly say I wouldn't trade it. Um, if I could rewrite history, I would not do that. It's made me who I am, and it also um, serves to prevent a sense of pride or um, entitlement from sneaking in on mm. me because I remember remember what it was like, and I know the work that it took um, to get here. But, you know, my message is, is that if, if I can do this where I started out in life, I don't know anyone. There are people, but I don't personally know anyone who started out further behind the finish, uh, starting line in life than I did. And if I can turn myself into someone that has something to give back and pay it forward and help other people, then you can too. Well, yes. Well, congratulations on all of this. And first of all, happy birthday. I'm I'm glad to be able to uh, celebrate your birthday with you. (laughs) you. Talking about your book. And uh, again, the name of the book is Stuck A Way Out. And my guest is Kim Casey Cobb. Um, that, that is your real name, right? <laughs> that is. That is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, and thank you all thank for you. listening. You've been listening to you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 